You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hello and welcome to the show. Stu Goldsmith here. Today I'm talking to the brilliant Jessie Cave. Is she a comedian? Is she a performance artist? She's certainly an actress. She's certainly an artist. And uh, you can find out everything she does at jessiedoodles.com. You can also go to comedianscomedian.com slash insiders to find out more about the effect that her role in Harry Potter many years ago had on her following and how it is a bit like being a member of the royal family in ways that are sometimes good, sometimes less so. All of that's in the insider stuff. We're going to talk about living life with an attitude of abundance. Uh, We'll talk about her relentless documentation of her life as a means of seeking permanence. We'll also cover the tragic death of her brother a couple of years ago and how she processed it and the effect it had on her creativity and on her new novel Sunset, which is available now. A content warning as well. Uh, Later on in the show, there will be some discussion of sexual assault and the effect that had on her work, on her upbringing. And uh, I will give you another content warning when that is just about to come up. Okay, that said, this is a wonderful episode with a deeply, deeply creative and talented person. This is Jessie Cave. Hello and welcome to the Comedians Comedian podcast. I am so excited to talk to specifically you because I think you live in creative abundance in a way that I'm really excited by. Does that? Do you think that's the case? Have you heard that expression? Are you familiar with the idea of living in abundance? I've never read any books on it. It's a thing I've heard people talk about. No, but I like it. I like that creative abundance. It's funny because me and Alfie have a joke about my diet that I live by, which is the abundance diet. <laughs> um, <laughs> because when I was a um, hormonal stress teenager and everybody was very thin and I was very jealous of them, I would... Um, Gillian McKeith was just coming up and she she had the abundance diet which was basically you could eat whatever you you can eat as much as you want of anything and so I took that I, I took that a bit far I she meant with you know like celery you can eat an abundance yeah, of sure. celery <laughs> um anyway sorry no but I do think I um I give off the impression of being you know very quirky and and creative the entire time but I think I'm actually a very practical person in lots of ways so I don't mind if people think of me as a terribly creative person, but I actually don't know if that's true. What I mean, the reason I suspect that uh, you're a terribly, your words, terribly creative person <laughs> are um, the shows of yours that I've seen. I've seen I Loved Her and I've seen Sunrise, and we should, we'll start with, we'll start proper, proper with Sunrise in a minute. But um, 
the those shows are both completely suffused with creativity and not just the creativity of writing them and performing them, but they also have things that you've built and things that are embroidered and things that are made and things that are doodled and things that are painted. And it's a real profusion of stuff. And I think that mirrors how how you they are. Your shows are incredibly specifically you in a way that uh, maybe surprisingly makes them really relatable, given how incredibly specific they are to you. That's so nice. I think it's rooted from I've, I've never I've never fit in at all in any aspect of school or as a person really, and even with career things and knowing what I wanted to do and um, I had absolutely no idea. All I knew was that I I liked making stuff and I and I'm not even particularly good at any one thing, but I am good at finding a way of expressing how I feel and um so the the shows and the entire reason I even got into doing shows was and I, I really only lately have had the confidence to call it comedy um is because there was no place for me in a career so <laughs> it was um making things and doing cardboard cutouts of my face or a baby's face or Alfie's face or even before I met Alfie, I was doing kind of like weird puppet stuff. Um, and, and it's so funny because when I was reviewed and, you know, they would say I was a, doing puppeteering, I would feel so embarrassed because it's like, it's literally a cereal box that I've done a doodle on and I don't know anything about puppeteering. Um, but I've just used it as a way of saying some dialogue with somebody and making it a bit easier and to, for an audience to understand what I'm doing. And I don't know. I, yeah, I've just tried to find a way basically of expressing myself. And, and talk to me about the difference between expressing yourself and fitting in or not fitting in, because that's a very, that's like a, a huge thing that you said very lightly. Like I've never fit in anywhere. And, and it's very, it's very kind of um, emblematic of you and your, your work on stage, which is, um, you're incredibly pragmatic about your own emotions in a way that's really thrilling to me as someone who feels, certainly by contrast, you know, certainly by comparison, massively inhibited about the things <laughs> I'll admit on stage, whereas you are completely uninhibited and sort of ruthlessly pragmatic about relaying your observations about how you felt and how you behaved. So I'm sort of, I suppose I've sort of asked two questions at once accidentally there because I'm all excited. But um, <laughs> I suppose what I'm asking is the difference between not fitting in and expressing yourself and, and just where they come in your character. Do you know what I mean? Because like one might think that if you express yourself, that would lead to fitting in or is that completely the opposite of fitting in? Um, I guess it does. And I guess it has, to a certain extent, made me feel much more... The fact that people have enjoyed my shows um, and have, have said that, that they related to them has has made me feel a sense of safety and, and happiness. And But it still hasn't solved the problem of... I'm, I've always felt like a very socially inept and very much an outsider... Um, but the reason I like, I don't know, it's so funny because looking back at the things I've said on stage and written, 
I am staggered that I've done that. And even now, given that it's been a few years since I've written anything as, um, well, I've just written a book, which is fiction, but it's very much rooted in truth. But um, I am shocked that I was that open. And I think maybe it's age, maybe getting a bit older and having kids that are older now. Um, I am not regretting being that open and exposing us and exposing how I felt as a mother or, you know, a psycho girlfriend or whatever. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that I did because I'm a different person now. So it's kind of like reading somebody else. And that's quite nice because I now have a record of what I was like at that age and that period of time. And I think that's the only reason I've ever done any work creatively is so I can document that I was here. And um, I'm a chronic diary keeper. Like I write in a diary every day, most days. And um, it's not like I'm writing Dear Diary today, I felt like this. It's literally just a record of something my son said or something that I did or my mum did. Or it's, um, And I've had that absolute need to do that since I was about nine. So I think it's just an extension of keeping a diary, really, doing shows. <laughs> yeah, right. That's a really interesting perspective. Um, and uh, that completely makes sense. That completely chimes with the way your shows work. Um, talk to me just a bit more about keeping a diary in order to to record... The, what did you say? To record that, that you I were here? here? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's mainly uh, a need to appreciate life, and especially when things aren't going great... Um, days can blur into a mess and you just don't realise that you've lived a week and you haven't really recorded anything, you don't remember anything. And I think I'm so wary of not appreciating how great life can be that I feel like if I don't... Like, for instance, I think it's gotten way more worse and the pressure to keep the diary has become so much stronger now that I have kids because, I mean, you'll know that, you know, time goes so fast and they develop so quickly and you then forget what they were like as a, a baby or a toddler. And, yeah. and then you, you realise that three years have gone by and you don't you got photos and even videos, but even the videos you're like, but I don't remember that. And so I think it's a way of me kind of, she said this weird thing today and writing it down and, and making me aware that I was so lucky to have that moment. And not to get too heavy too quickly, but my brother died two years ago. And weirdly, that new year, so it was, he died in March 2019. And that new year, so 2018, 2019, um, New Year's Day, Alfie and I got, um, one of those really cheesy one day, uh, one, one line a day books you can get in like cards galore or paper chase. And you're meant to write down one line every day and, they, they, they're like 15 quid each and I got all my got all my family one and be like you know we have to record our lives because we're so lucky and we're so you know and um th- so I would start by writing one thing and I tried to make Alfie do it but he didn't he lasted like two days didn't even last that actually um but I kept going and um when it came to the day that he died um I remember I couldn't write anything other than obviously Ben died um but it was crucial that the next day I wrote in it because I had you know a two-year-old and a three-year-old at the time and I remember thinking okay this is going to ruin my life this has ruined this is as I, my life as I know it has ended now my family's life so 
what am I going to do with this? Am I going to let it ruin us? Or am I going to still see that there can be joy in things? And so writing something that Donnie did that day, or, you know, he was dressing a Spider-Man outfit that day or something, just made me, it absolutely saved me. Um, and in the same way with writing Sunrise, which was about when me and Alfie were broken up, and when he, we were having these terrible conversations about who he'd slept with and all of this stuff, I writing it down saved me because I was like, it's actually quite funny, you know, what, what he's saying. And seeing it on paper made me feel better. And um, I think that's what I've just always used writing as a form of therapy. I'm so sorry to hear about the death of your brother. I didn't know about that. No. Yeah, terrible. Absolutely terrible. There's just nothing anyone can say, really. It's just absolutely yeah. terrible. But that has made me more of a chronic writer. Um, do you yeah. do you feel like the expression of your your um, this desire to record stuff does it? It's definitely expression, expressive. It's definitely artistic. Does it feel healthy when you say it? When you describe it as chronic. Does it feel like a healthy expression or does it feel kind of compulsive? It's kind of, I'm not, I'm not, uh, I don't drink. I don't, I, I don't really drink. I don't smoke. I don't do any drugs or anything like that. It does feel like an addiction to me writing, um, it's, it, the diary thing. And it's mm. not like eloquent prose here. It's like the most basic record. Um, and once I've done it, I feel like a release. I do. And, um, it, we've been moving recently and, um, all of our stuff is in chaos and, and I haven't had time, I haven't even found my diary kind of thing. And I, I've just felt so uptight and stressed and I know I've missed stuff. And also being, you know, maybe a little bit depressed sometimes. And I, I have more recently like let days slide and just not recorded anything. And it, it does make me more unhappy. So it's crucial that I do it. I know, and it's just my. If it is an addiction, I'm I'm gonna be addicted forever because it, mm. it's definitely, it's it's, yeah, it's it's just absolutely saved me. Is there, is there um, when you described earlier on, I know exactly what you mean about watching videos of your children or seeing photos of your children, and I think like it's beautiful. I'm so glad they exist. My wife is very <laughs> the photos. Not I'm very glad the children exist. Obviously, my <laughs> my wife is really kind of she'll take pictures all through the day and then compose them for Instagram things. And as a result, it's all it's like I take pictures. They're all just on a hard drive, and you know to go through them just becomes increasingly impossible and frightening. So I benefit. Yeah. We benefit as a family enormously from having that record that she's kept and and organised. But I find myself sometimes it's almost alienating to look at the pictures because you can't climb inside the picture. Like that happened. But like you say, you see a video of your kid, you go, I remember when they spoke like that, but I don't, you don't get to, it's like your dreams. You don't get to actually go inside them. You just kind of get mm. flickers and what have you. Does, does that, is there a similar problem with looking back at stuff that you've written or does the fact of you having written it make it more permanent or more meaningful than a, than a photo? I think... I don't know. I I have a massive um, anxiety about photos. I have on my phone right now, I have something like 100,000 photos. And Alfie always tells me to stop taking photos. And um, and I, I, I buy st extra storage on my iPhone so I can, you know, have as many. I don't ever have to go through them and delete them. Whereas I do feel writing has made things more permanent. Um, and they're forever. You're never going to go through 100,000 photos, but you can read... Uh, you know, a 90 page thing or, a you know, mm -hmm. 
I, I, I do think it's, it's got something. And also, yeah, I completely relate to the not being able to climb in the photo and hold the baby or I, it's, it's, it's heartbreaking actually. And I do really get jealous of people who aren't attached and aren't nostalgic about photos and just let it be and live in the moment. But then I also think if I hadn't have taken those photos, I, I don't remember anything anyway. So at least I have a photo. Um, so that's my argument. <laughs> that that thing of I don't remember anything anyway. Do you feel that you remember less than most people? I I don't think so. I I'm very I'm just so hyper aware of dying, um, and I think that that comes. It was before it was before Ben, but it's now it's now just you know a different level. Um, because it was just a, you know, a sudden trauma overnight, dead, done, gone. And, um, that trauma, I think will stay with me forever and, and has made me absolutely aware that it can be done in a second. And, um, so every day I live like it is my last day, Mm. um, which is just fucking exhausting. (laughs) Um, but it, you know, at least I'm here and I'm appreciating it. And do you mean when you say you live every day as if it's your last day, is that a sort of trying to bite down on the day and get as much of as much as you can out of it? Um, kind of. It's more I look at the kids and my life as it stands and I, I'm very, you know, grateful the entire time. But being grateful is also really exhausting. I'm really, really, really grateful, really, really tired. Um, I just constantly think I'm, I'm very lucky. And I think that's, I'm reading a book, I'm reading the, the book that everyone tells you to read when some, somebody dies, but I've been reluctant to read it until now because I thought, well, I'm going to read the more obscure ones, actually. <laughs> um, but I am finally reading The Year of Magical Thinking by Joan Didion, and she's got some just amazing, amazing lines in it that have made me realise that I'm going through something which is just so normal. It's not yeah. like my form of grief is like, weird and abnormal it's just everything she's saying I'm feeling and um I she she has this great line saying that she finds a letter that her husband wrote to her before he died and at the time she didn't appreciate it it was just a dedication or something um in one of his books and she said at the time I didn't appreciate it and that kind of sends shivers up my spine the thought that I'm not appreciating the good that's still there and um I think when something terrible happens, you do suddenly realise that your life is that you that you did have is now over. You're into a different part of your life, and I think that's a huge step forward for me when I think of it. Right, okay, that's part one, and this is part two, and so um, it's more that I look at Donnie or I look at Margot in the day or the baby, and I'm like, this is amazing. That this is great. They're here. That we're here, and we've got to appreciate it now. But yeah, I don't know if that's a symptom and I don't know if that will go on forever. I don't know if I'm always going to be this kind of, you know, desperately grateful the entire time. Gratitude is exhausting. To be grateful Mm -hmm. is exhausting. That's something, yeah, God. I just really resent or I get very jealous of um, parents that are really, you know, they don't, they're like, oh, they can go to the nanny the entire time. They can just, oh, oh, great, we can go away for a week. And, oh, I don't have to see them. Oh, they're at school camp. Or parents that just are so confident that their kid is going to stay around. 
and um and this is I'm so to be so deep but it's just it's they're such an amazing thing to have and we're so lucky and 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 I just I just constantly think of how lucky I am in that regard and I think that maybe because we had a one night stand and I got pregnant it was just such a weird miracle mm. um so it's not like we planned anything and so maybe that's partly my need to be like hey I I got a free ride here I got I got I just got in accidentally to this world maybe that's it I remember um, I did a gig in Glastonbury once where I was uh, heckled by someone who was aggrieved that I was being too diffident or too negative about my children. My, I think I just had the one at the time and I was doing material about, you know, resenting them. And, you know, not just sleeplessness, but, you know, all, all, all of those things. Like one of those big breaks where you go, wow, that was part one and this is part two and I haven't acclimatised to it yet. And also I was being a comic about it and being a male comic about it and making it all about me and my view. And he heckled me and he became quite disruptive and eventually uh, was asked to leave. But he wasn't totally wrong when he could, you know, he was sort of shouting, they're a blessing. Children are a blessing. And I was like, oh, I mean, you are you are right. It doesn't, it's not useful for me to talk about all the good things about them because I'm a comedian. And I, if I just exactly. stand there for half an hour and tell you how wonderful and how life changing it's been. That's not no, funny. I, com- I completely agree. There's no that you're allowed. You're on stage trying to be funny. That's absolutely fine. I, I am. I'm. I do that too. And Alfie definitely does it. Um, <laughs> and I think that's absolutely fine. And also, this is a. This is a. We're talking, and I'm. I'm just being, you know, very sincere about it. But I wouldn't ever public. I wouldn't write a caption on Instagram saying, "I am so lucky to have my children," and I am incredibly. You know, I would never do that. And I do. I did see a lot of that during the pandemic of, of um did you see all the memes of parents homeschooling and stuff and then there would be people underneath um commenting like you don't know how lucky you are to have children you shouldn't be joking about you know how annoying it is to homeschool you're you're yeah. lucky and i was saying yeah but it's also really difficult sometimes and it's also not great all the time and it you have to make massive sacrifices and it's doesn't we should we're allowed to complain about it too so yeah does your you talked earlier on about your your entry into like or the fact that you'd only recently started considering the shows to be comedy or yourself to be a comedian. And I think that's I think that's Alfie though. <laughs> whenever, <laughs> whenever I say whenever it's called stand up, he gets very very right. like okay, let's just stop right there. It's not it's not stand up. And to be fair, I do agree with him, but I like kind of I like kind of joking sometimes that I'm a stand up. Um, for the for the listener who is not aware, the Alfie we're talking about is comedian Alfie Brown, friend of the show, friend of mine, common law husband of yours, according to him. He I don't says know if that's... that all the time. Yeah. Really... I just think, I don't think you should be allowed to say that, given that he's not proposing. It's like don't say yeah. common law yeah. husband. Just say boyfriend. If you're not going to fucking propose, don't. You can't call me a. Con- I'm not. I haven't agreed to that. Um, and. You, the reason, like ordinarily, if I'm interviewing someone and their partner is a comic, I try to be classy and not bring it up. But his life <laughs> and your relationship is an enormous part of your work because your work is, you know, you mentioned puppeteering in inverted commas earlier on. One of the things you're puppeteering is his face or his likeness embroidered onto a pillow. And I believe the show I loved her. You know, that embroidery behind you with all the different names on it is the names of women he's slept with. I remember being in the audience in Sunrise 
uh, in Edinburgh in 2019 and you going, just give me a cheer if you slept with Alfie or, or if you give me a cheer if you love Alfie. I can't remember. I think it might have been if you love Alfie because I nearly no, cheered. No, has anyone <laughs> fucked Alfie Brown? Has anyone here fucked Alfie Brown? So, it, like, obviously his he his... He is a presence in your work, in the work of yours, in a lot of the work of yours that I've seen. I flicked onto yours and BB's podcast on YouTube. We can't talk about that right now. And maybe it was me automatically selecting one in which he was a guest. But there he was again. <laughs> you know, and it, like you're kind of, you are, you're intertwined. Your art is often intertwined with with him. And so it's interesting. Like, I, I don't know how to kind of, deal with it interviewer wise because i i just would never bring it up normally but i'm like yeah. oh yeah that's like quite a huge deal right I've... yeah and also i'm i i'm not that cool you know i think it's very cool when people don't ever talk about their other half and or they you know they don't feel the need to write everything they've said down um <laughs> but i'm i'm not that kind of person so it annoys him that you call it stand-up comedy and so you do to annoy him which i think is lovely yes I mean, also, to be honest, the, it's not stand-up comedy at all. It's the opposite. It's um, it's performance art, which, which is funny, um, hopefully. And um, he he is right. Well, I don't know if he is. I mean, it's not stand-up comedy in a narrow definition of stand-up comedy. I think it's stand-up. And I think um, I... And I'll fight him. I, <laughs> I think it's stand-up. And I think it is also performance art that's funny. But I'm interested in the... The ways in which, like, do those terms, are those terms useful to you? Is it useful to you to think of it as performance art that's funny? Because it isn't the sort of stand-up that I have ever seen doing 20 minutes on a mixed bill in a club. But you could do that if you wanted to, because the stuff is incredibly dense, really rich, really full of punchlines and performed brilliantly. So you, it could sit there. You, you may not want it to. But Maybe. what... What are the what are the are the are the terms performance art that's funny? Is that useful to you as a way of thinking about it? Is there something f- creatively freeing in that, or or what is it that you see that stand up is that you are not? I think I was determined when I wrote Sunrise that I was going to do stand up um, because I wanted to threaten Alfie and be <laughs> you know similarly on the same scene as him. And when I told him, actually, I'm going to write some hardcore stand up. I'm going to write some really, like, really real stand-up. And you're going to see me at the clubs. And you're going to be, you, you, I'm going to be on before you. And I'm just going to, and um, obviously it did not work out that way. I immediately wrote a puppet thing and it became verbatim chats we've had about, you know, peanut butter toast and stuff. Um, but uh, I think it has helped me get in the door having labels like stand-up has got me, um, I think you need to be called something in order to get on things. And mm-hmm. so I, my first show, which was called Bookworm, which I did in 2012, I had never been to Edinburgh Festival before. I had done Harry Potter, but I hadn't got any work after Harry Potter. I was 24 and had no idea what I was doing other than doing silly YouTube videos. And I thought, oh, I'll just go and do a, I'll write a show and we'll go to, that, where do people do shows? Okay, Edinburgh Festival, we'll do that. So my whole family, Bibi was in the show. She was 13 or 14. Uh, and I just wrote a funny, funny-ish show about a book club spoof. But I didn't realise that was allowed. I just, yeah. because, I, I, and the, the, the bonus of being in Harry Potter was that they thought I would sell tickets. Yeah. So they gave me a room at the underbelly. 
And I sold no tickets. I had to go out and do flyering. And I had to, you know, because that's not how it works. Just because you've been in a film doesn't mean you're automatically going to sell out things. People are so stupid. Um, anyway, so it's just helped me get in the door by terming it as comedy or stand-up. But um, I think people are always slightly surprised. And when I have done mixed bill shows and I've come on with my puppets, it has been stone-cold silence. So okay. I don't know if I would... <laughs> into those things so this is jesse i'm enjoying this enormously and uh i'm just going to remind you very quickly of two things the content warning for uh, the the chat coming up which is going to cover sexual assault and also to go to the insiders club comedians comedian.com slash insiders for 15 minutes of extras about um her membership of the harry potter franchise and the legacy of fandom and everything that means to her also how the cave sisters patreon has changed her relationship with elements of her following and if you're not already watching we can't talk about this right now on youtube or listening to it at your various podcast providers then get on that now and you can join the patreon patreon.com slash cave sisters to get the sort of intimate stuff that we are talking about uh, in that section of the Insiders Club. So uh, let's get back to the interview. This is Jesse. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the thing I think that lots of comics will relate to. I decided to do A, but then it just turned into what I always do. So you were like, I'm going to write some stand-up. Talk to me a little bit about that, because what is that? Like, you have an artistic intention, you intend to do a particular thing, and then it turns into the thing that is inescapably you, which is verbatim conversations, documentation of texts, and and all of that kind of stuff. Puppets. And puppets. Yeah. Well, I really want... I think that um, the desire was to go onto a stage and not have any baggage... I mean, and I mean actual stuff. I don't mean like emotional baggage. I, I just thought it'd be so freeing just to turn up somewhere and go on and just need a microphone and then just be able to speak and then come off stage. That must be so easy. You don't have to traipse around with suitcases and worry about something not being ironed or the, the backdrop not being even or just, I just, I thought that's, that's, that's a good, healthy step forward for me in my career, just not to have so much stuff, especially with, the hilarious thing about my first show book one was that we had it was it was a huge set that me my mum and BB did it was just every every show was just an absolute nightmare but looking back it's just, it was beautiful and um so yeah I I think I and I do definitely have a brain for 
the 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 fact that I document everything and anything that's moderately funny I write down and so I thought okay well this would be useful for stand-up because it's just like observational stuff that you know my kids said that's a huge Mm. you know market out there um and so I I thought, oh, I can easily just do this, you know, how annoying it is to buy kids' shoes. I could do some stand-up about that, or I could do some stand-up about, you know, um, going on a date and, you know, not knowing if you're going to have a table or if you're going to stand up. I can do some stand-up about that. Um, but it just, it's just not in my nature to be simple about things and to be, you know, understated. So it just turned into, well, I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll, you know, use a, I'll, I'll do actual dialogue with Alfie and how can I have Alfie be here? I'll just have him as a puppet. And and then my mum's idea was to embroider him. At first he was a paper mache balloon. Um, <laughs> and actually the way that started was I, when we were broken up and when uh, it was really difficult and I was, I was dating and I had this 10 minute slot, at, I think a knock to bag gig or something. And I, used it as a deadline for myself as like, I'm going to be, I'm going to be confident and go and rock on and do some stand up on this date. But obviously five days before I had this panic attack and I started paper mache and balloons. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it did. And that, that evolved into doing, and that was like a first date scene, which was in sunrise. And then that evolved into doing the whole show. So hmm. it was just slowly my confidence build up into being like, okay, this is what I do. So mm. I had to just get on board with it. You mentioned your mum, and in the episode of the of uh, we can't is we can't talk about that right now. Yeah. Um. You mentioned that uh, you come from a sort of creative, colourful, eccentric family. Tell me mm. a bit about that. Tell me a bit about your about what that means, and whether you think that that upbringing is part of why you felt you didn't fit in anywhere, or whether it, what the relationship is between those things. Well, I'm one of five and I'm the second oldest and Bibi's 10 years younger and she's the youngest. And I begged my mum for a sister. So I have three brothers and sister and I begged her. Um, uh, I We grew up in a very small house with five kids. Um, even though my, my, my dad's doctor, my mum was a doctor, but she stopped after the third child and became full-time mum. Uh, but she's always been creative she shouldn't have been a doctor she should definitely have been now what she is doing which is a seamstress and a creative maker who's kind of my partner in business and everything we do like she runs my doodle shop she we make stuff together she does all the backdrops for our shows she we sell her backdrops now you know so she's doing finally what she should have been doing but back then you know you were either a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse you know very straightforward things and um and my dad, even though he's a GP, but he's a quite a creative doctor. He is, a, you know, a really good public speaker and is very innovative and is kind of a bit of an inventor. And I think that's what my mum is too. She's very inventive with things. Um, um, being tidy or being um, was just never a priority. We were it's just it was, the house was chaos, <laughs> and um, my mum would just every day add another shelf so we just kind of collected everything and we the house the 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 walls were just covered in drawings and it was just never that was that was something that she just encouraged and didn't stop and I think now that I'm living in as a parent and I have my own space 
And weirdly, actually, in lockdown, we decided we we moved from a very small flat and then we suddenly had this kind of like breakdown. And we're like, we need more space. And when I was pregnant, um, so we moved into a bigger house. And then now we've just moved into a smaller flat again. And it's weird. I immediately feel at home move, living in a smaller space. Okay. Um, I like my stuff being around me. I like there's mess and I like, well, I don't like mess, but I like all of our stuff everywhere. Hello, Stu here. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. This is just a quick content warning regarding the content of sexual assault. Jessie is about to mention that she was sexually assaulted as a teenager, and we talk about some issues around that. So over the next five minutes or so, we'll be talking about those things. And this is also an opportunity for me to apologise, really, to Jessie and to you, the listener. Listening back to this, I'm not thrilled with my response. I think it was in keeping with the tone of the interview, but ultimately her abrupt kind of revelation made me uncomfortable and I didn't really know how to respond. Listening back to it, I should have at the very least said something like, I'm so sorry, that's awful. And uh, I didn't because I felt uncomfortable and that's my thing to deal with, not anyone else's. So with that said, let's get back to the interview. I think that we weren't encouraged to... We were definitely encouraged academically, um, but I didn't really do very well academically. And then I also think the priority was working hard. So it doesn't really matter what you do as long as you you, you have a strong work ethic and you work hard. And I think that's just something which I have followed on. And I think um, that's largely due to the fact that we were very, very competitive tennis players as teenagers me and my older brother, Robbie, um, and, and county swimmers. The, the, the younger three weren't those things. And I think my mum had relaxed by the time that they were that age. But me and Robbie were like, you know, we were going to be professional tennis players, and, but I didn't grow. I got raped by my tennis coach, which wasn't ideal. And um, it just wasn't what, what we were going to do. But So I think sport as a child makes you a very driven, kind of disciplined adult, I think. Um, as a as a side note, probably not for the recording. If it's not too much emotional labour, when when you drop that in, what do you <laughs> think is an appropriate response for me so that I can grow as a person? I know, but I shouldn't say. I should say. Apparently, I should say trigger warning. But I'm like, I'm sorry. I was the one who's raped. Why do I have to give a trigger warning now? For sure. Yeah, I've been told of so many times about that. I don't think you do, uh, but I think I, as a broadcaster, need to put a trigger warning. On maybe the then in the intro you say yeah. trigger warnings. There is talk about uh, rape. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and also, I, I I do talk about it, you know, heavily in in Sunrise. So it's not like it's sure. the first sure. time I've ever mentioned it. No, no, no. But we we didn't. We made a massive mistake because when we started our podcast, the first episode we were just chatting about stuff, and then I. We were talking about our sexual development or something. And then I said, well, obviously mine was, you know, annoying because I was a virgin and I got raped. Mm. And um, we started talking about that and it obviously got picked up by the Daily Mail. <laughs> it was just a nightmare. It was a nightmare because it was such a lesson in, oh, people might listen to this and they might, like, take it really seriously. And we didn't do a trigger warning. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I have, I'm, I'm a bit bad like that. Yeah. I mean, that is you, you, I think this is an observation, I suppose, rather than a question, but 
the we, I mentioned kind of pragmatism earlier on and being matter of fact about your experiences. And one of the one of my observations really about your work is that you are a person of the internet in a way that I'm kind of too old to be. Like you embrace you know the concept of broadcasting your experience on multiple platforms you know you're on instagram frequently you're a big following on instagram and you sort of exist with a sort of relationship with your followers and your patreon followers for the podcast and and you know making doodles for people and stuff you sort of exist in in step with the internet in a way that people of my age are maybe i'm 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 too too late for that do you know what I mean? No. Well, I don't think it's too late for that, but um, it's in my nature. And also, given that I've never fit in, given that I've never had any ease with my career, it's always been me, you know, banging down doors and finding a place for myself, making my own work, and then eventually getting attention for it. And then eventually, you know, I was in TV development for eight years. I realised that was just pointless. And now I, I you know, I've decided whatever I do in my career going forward, it's going to be my, I'm going to do it myself. And so the internet is absolutely necessary for those. If I'm going to, if I'm going to make things myself, I need to get people to watch it or I need to get people to buy it or I need to get people to know that it's, I'm doing this. So it's a brilliant time for people who do want to do it themselves. Um, because you don't need anybody, Mm. you know, as much as, you know, my agent is brilliant and, and it's the only kind of traditional thing I have is, you know, route to tradition is having an agent still, but you know, I, I, I am really keen to do things myself, and I think that's slightly annoying as an agent, maybe sometimes. But um, she's she's amazing, and she understands that I I just kind of get on with things, um, and so yeah, the internet is just really, really great for me. And I think there's. There is something that feels to me that feels quite contemporary in your ownership of the fact that you were raped and the fact that you were that you would say, "Why have I got to worry about it? Why should I trigger warning it?" That feels like a, an incredibly healthy response. Yeah, and it's, it's so terrifying to say because it's like, in, especially right now, everyone's so careful. Uh, you know, they don't. They everyone thinks. We have to be wrapped up and and we're not, yes, we were a victim, but we aren't, we aren't I'm not living as a victim. I'm, I haven't lived my life like that. And I do have a terribly practical side to me, which is like, again, like when Ben died the next day I wrote in my diary, it's the same thing with this. It was exactly how I, it formed me. It completely formed me being great to 15 because I had to wake up the next morning and decide, oh, this could this could ruin my life. This could absolutely mess me up now. What am I going to do about it? And, um, yeah, I put it in a box and I decided I'm going to, I'm going to leave that box there for a bit and I'm going to keep going. And yes, that's not probably healthy. And I have been told probably about 500 times that I should have extensive therapy, but my therapy is working and expressing myself and talking about it and, being funny about it that's my therapy that's how I've got better and it's very disconcerting for people when I do talk about it because I am quite funny about it um and that's a privilege I have because it wasn't a brutal rape it wasn't like 
it was a stranger off the street. It was it was actually, you know, incredibly sinister. But at the same time, I I can find the funny in it because it's my thing and I'm allowed to do that. But um, yeah, it's just it's it's really funny watching people's response because they're like, I, what what am I what am I meant to say about it? But and even on our first date, Alfie and I, um, oh, oh, actually our one night stand, which turned into more. Um, I think I was just just straight away came off the bat and was like, I was raped when I was a teen. And I think I was just nervous and it was just a way of like breaking the ice about it or something. I think I told him about an STD that I had and just, I just, within five minutes, I was just overspilling with everything about me so he could make a judgment, a quick judgment. And is there an element of that whereby you knew it would be disconcerting for him and so it changes the dynamic in the conversation? Maybe. And also he has a very annoying ability to be quite disarming with, he's very still. And so I arrived flustered and immediately felt like, why is he being so calm and confident and still? And so I just kind of overcompensated by telling him about my vagina or my rape or, you know, all the things I've got on TV development that are never going to get made, all of the ideas, all of the episode ideas and just, you know, ridiculous level of information you received. <laughs> I'm interested in the the marrying in your personality of the kind of sort of effusive, creative, doodling, building, embroidering kind of part of you and the bit of you that is like a life coach. The bit of you that is like Goggins or someone going, work harder, do more, run faster. And and how those things sit together. Do you think that they're necessary for each other to to exist? Um, well, I thought about this the, the other day because we've been moving and I haven't had time to sit at my desk in such a long time. Um, and I'm so heavily, like, at the moment, promoting... Um, well, basically, I've split myself into so many different jobs now because I'd like doing all of them that I realised I can't do that. I have to be quite clear right now with the one thing I'm doing because if I want one thing to do particularly well, I can't be promoting my doodle shop or I can't be promoting my podcast particularly or I can't be... If I if I want my book to... People to know that I've written a book and I'm really proud of it and I want it to be read. So I've had to, like, delegate at the moment and think, okay, it's not the time to do some drawings. It's not the time to do something for the fun of it and creative thing of it. It's time for me to be like business-like about how I'm going to get people to read my book. So I like that side of it. I like being quite business-minded. Um, but I did also realise the other day that I'm, I'm never going to be one of these people that sits down and does a painting for the fun of it or just draws for fun. I've never done that. It's always been with an aim to, right, how can I make this a job? How can I do this and, and people might like like it enough to to subscribe to me or whatever? It's just always been that way. And I think that's rooted from art school in particular. When I was at art school, I only draw the way I draw now. And you were told, you know, to do all these different styles and try out different things and different, you know, to see what you're going to be like. And I remember just thinking, what's the logic in that? This is my style. Why am I going to change that? Yeah. And they were like, but, you know, you should try, let's try some oil paint today or, um, you know, print, let's try doing some some acrylic or whatever. And I was just like, no, because I like drawing like this. So, and it's and it's, it's my thing. And I actually, 
really am glad that I, I did drop out. And because I thought, well, no, because I'm, I'm not going to be the best oil painter. I'm never going to be able to paint a horse. So I might as well just stick to what I'm good at and move on. Um, and years later now, that is, <laughs> it's funny because all of my art school contemporaries are really successful artists now. And I see how they did do the variation and things. And, but they've come back to their original style that they did at art school in the first term. So I'm like, yeah, they can probably draw those things, but their innate style is still them. So it was just, I don't know, there's no point to what I'm saying, but... No, no, I no, I, I, I get it completely. It's about, it's about resisting being adaptable. Mm. I was like, I'm not, I'm not what you think I am. I know what I am. So I'm just going to say it was awesome time and drop out. <laughs> <laughs> so, so did you, in your way, like I when you were saying before, I don't fit in anywhere... I, part of me thinks, having never been to art school, I went to kind of wacky devised theatre school in Dartington. So it was it was pretty it was pretty cut open a rabbit and find a poem inside. There was quite a lot of that. So it was sort of almost <laughs> art school, but without the uh, but with even less actual uh, skill involved often. But um, does was it? And part of me, like from a layperson's perspective, like, wow, you even managed to not fit in at art school. <laughs> like, presumably, <laughs> I might imagine the people at art school were people that didn't fit in in other places. Or is that totally wrong? No, but that's true. I didn't fit in. And that's because I was more businesslike. I was yeah. actually not appropriate. I was I wasn't quirky enough for art school. I'm I look like I should have fit in at art school, but actually I was too business minded um, and too driven in certain areas. And thought, okay, what's going to save us? What's going to save me time? What do I, what should I be doing? What's, and I've always thought about this in terms of my career because I do so many different things. Um, like I've got to pick the, the, the winning horse whilst it's winning. Like, I don't know if this doesn't make sense to all. I've tried to describe it in so many different analogies over the years, but you know, if I've got five different horses and they're all, you know, you know, trotting along, you know, no, it's not horses. It's dogs. It's dogs. <laughs> you know, the, the, Racing dogs. Yeah, greyhound racing. Kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, That's there we go. Yeah, there we go. So I'm going to go with whatever one is fastest on the day. So right now it's writing. So I'm yeah. going with that for a bit. Yeah. But I might go back to drawing. I might go back to doing shows. But right now I'm putting my money behind that one. Gotcha. It's like you're the agent of all of the different yous with the different careers. And if one of them has a particular success, you're like, let's focus attention on that one. Exactly. Because also I know that my heart is in doing drawings. That is what I feel like I was meant to be, is just an illustrator. So it's like I'm saving that for when I, you know, for a rainy day. Right now I'm going to try and push myself in other arenas. But the doodle shop is lovely because it's something that just kind of ticks along and is what I, is, is a very calming thing for me to do. I would love, I've got... I mean, I think the word it is a, a awful word I learned recently, which is solopreneur. Are you familiar with that word? <laughs> no. It's uh, it's entrepreneurs who are like the whole thing themselves, and I think I'm oh, probably great. one, and you're probably one as well. We don't need to like the yes. word, and mostly people just use it to try and sell you pyramid selling, you know, stuff okay. about. <laughs> no, you I know. like the word. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, a That's solopreneur. That's why I'm going to put on my my bio on all of my Instagram. <laughs> you wouldn't be alone in doing that, but you might be. You might be particularly qualified to do that. Like we don't really think about it in terms of art because. Like no one ever, it's one of my kind of bugbears really is no one ever talks in terms of creative efficiency. I love having loads of things on. I probably, if I don't love, I probably on some level get off on. I'm excited by the panic that comes with 
oh God, which one of my projects can I pay attention to most today? Because there's so much on and I'm sort of, sometimes I feel like I'm drowning in them, but that's quite exciting, you know, keeps me busy. That I have that kind of work ethic to an extent. I think for me, the dream would be to have something like the doodle shop, whereby something that you find relaxing and positive of itself can be monetized for passive income. (laughs) Oh my God. Exactly. I know, I know. And it was so surprising as well. And also Alfie's idea, because I've always done drawings. That's how I started off, like doing a drawing day on Twitter. And he was the one to say, you should do prints. You should do, you should start a shop. And I always just thought, no, people aren't going to buy them. What? And he was the one to do that. He's always been so encouraging like that. Um, and, and even my agent quite often when I said, oh, I'm busy because I've, you know, got, because I occasionally I do hand drawings for people and I personalize them and it takes up a lot of time. And especially during lockdown, actually, that was my main mm. job. Um, and she was like, you should be charging more. And I'm like, but people won't buy them if they're more than eight pounds. And so I have, I am very businesslike and driven, but I also am just innately desperate. Um, and constantly I'm surprised that people like anything I do or buy them or subscribe to them or come to a show. So I think that's what is the main driving force in my career is just like the, the fear that no one's going to turn up or no one's going to buy it or no one's going to like me. So while they do just make the most of it. Yes. Tell us quickly about the book. Well, the book is called Sunset, which is not very original, given that my other show was Sunrise, and people do think it must be some kind of something related to Sunrise, but it's absolutely not. It's about two sisters. And I got the book deal just after Ben died. Um, and it was it was a, a just a massive decision, really, to either do it or not. And I thought, OK, actually given you know what I said about my life kind of being suddenly you know it was a massive crossroads and so I thought actually I'm going to do something completely different and so I did spend two years writing it and it's an it's a novel and it's about two sisters and it's kind of very much rooted in me and Bibi's relationship but it's based on it's about a one of them dying and that's something obviously I could write about and dying you know by a sudden trauma accident um she basically jumps off a cliff and doesn't come up, um, which weirdly was in the news today. A, a girl jumped off a cliff and didn't come up. Mm. Anyway, um, so it was traumatising to write and brilliant. And it's, it is funny, hopefully, which is also, um, I think, when they were trying to first market the book, it was quite interesting because, again, they were going for Harry Potter actress writes mm. romantic comedy. And I think that's what they wanted. But halfway through... I was like, okay, this isn't that at all. This is not a comedy, and it, but it is funny, but it's dark, and it's it's um it's it's just been my whole last two years, and it's finally out, and it's really exciting because I kind of feel like it's the beginning, but also the end. And like I was saying about it's it's kind of charted my first two years of grief, which I now couldn't write about. Like, I wouldn't know what it's like in the immediate aftermath of a trauma now because I don't remember because I, I blocked it all out. So I'm really glad I've written about it because it's very particular to this stage of grief, which is the sudden, quick, um, brutal after, aftermath. Mm. So, and it's not like I was trying to write the book to help people, but I did find in the 
um, I, I needed to read stuff after Ben died. Like I needed to read stuff and all the books that out were out there about death were memoirs or like the kind of books that are like the five stages of grief and that really books that just, if you type in books about grief, you know, you get top, the top five. And I read the top five and then I was like, but these haven't helped me because they weren't really particular to sibling loss. And so this is a particular book about sibling loss, but it's also hopefully a, a universal book about the sibling bond and how you can be nasty to each other, but still love each other. And if it makes anybody kind of, if it helps anyone through grief or if it helps anyone just text their sister mm. or brother after they've read it to say, oh, we haven't spoken in a few weeks, but I just want to say I love you or whatever, that would be like what I want from it. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you find, did you find in writing it, because it seems like you, you said it's kind of based in your relationship with BB. The work of yours that I've seen on stage, it's completely, there's no subtext. No, I don't mean there's no subtext to the criticism. What I mean is it's actually about no. the people you're naming and the real names. And a question I sort of had vaguely racked up was the names on the embroidery. Would it make a difference to you if you'd changed the names? Would it, would, you, would it ever occur to you to safeguard people's privacy by changing the names? And if so, would that create a flaw in the art? Or would it not matter at all because the, the emotion was the same? Yeah, it didn't even occur to me to change the names. And I don't think... It- I don't think it would have made such an impact, actually. I, maybe I should have. Like you'd you'd also, be the only person that knew, but that would that would be an issue for you because it you wouldn't be it wouldn't function as a diary anymore. It wouldn't function as a document, maybe. Yeah, I think I'm always so primed to be attacked in 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 a creative way, like you know, to be um, for people to criticize me. So I thought, well, it has to be honest because then at least I can respond honestly. So if I change the names, then it suddenly becomes fiction and it suddenly becomes not true. Whereas if this is my account of what happened or it, at least I can fight back. So that was, that's the blurry thing about the book because it isn't me and BB, but it is rooted in both of us. Like we're, we're a mixture of both of the sisters. As as is my mum. My mum's a bit of both of them too. And Ben is massively a bit of both of them. And so that's been a luxury to suddenly realise I can do fiction and it doesn't have to be chained truth. And we can have other aspects of our personality that are actually great or horrible and it's not us. That's been incredibly liberating um, and something I definitely will, I think, go forward with um, to just, because just, of how freeing I found it. Just sorry, I'm, I slightly missed that. What was it that was particularly liberating? What was the realization there? The the realization that I can write, and it doesn't have to be me, and yes. it doesn't have to be BB or Alfie, yeah. or it doesn't have to be completely my story. It can be an imagined story, and it can be other people's things. But there can be parts of that that are a little bit true or inspired from truth. But I can go more with it or less with it. And yes, that's I understand. Been, I understand because you've got because you've got this enormous wealth of. Uh, experience at writing down what is true mm. now you can sort of loosen off the truth uh i don't know what that was i'm yeah, sort exactly. of imagining no, but it, no, it I get it. Yeah. <laughs> now yeah. i can kind of just you know springboard from that truth and go into different territories and 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 not i don't know i've never felt qualified to write fiction yeah uh and now i feel a little bit more just because i've written so much of the non-fiction. I don't know. I think it's really been good practice. 
Talk to me about the idea of qualifications. I'm interested in that word qualified, about what, about how we regard ourselves, sort of our entitlement to, that's a negative, I don't mean any of the negative connotations, but what entitles us to write, what qualifies us to write or well, no, to create I, art. I am so, so not about qualifications now. And I, I now that I've written it, and I have always felt that I'm not qualified to be a writer and I shouldn't call myself one and um, I don't I don't have a degree. I don't really spell very well. I definitely don't know anything about grammar. Um, but it's only with encouragement from other people who've read my writing and them saying, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. All that matters is the story and the characters and how you're writing it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter about the grammar or anything like that. So I think that... Um, it's a massive thing that, you know, people want to have, they want to have a reason to be there. So they're like, well, I've got this qualification and this and this and this, so I, I should be allowed to be called a writer. But it doesn't, it's really not about that anymore. I think it's about the ideas and if you're going to be the one to actually make the effort to write it down. And I think that so often people say that they write and they, they really just don't. And, um, yeah, it's just about putting yourself out there, really, is the qualification, <laughs> That's really interesting. Someone once said to me about it was about um, it was about my perceived threat of someone using an idea that I'd come up with for something, and someone like a mentor figure in my life said, "You're only uh, an idea is only as good as the ability to execute it," and I think that's totally. sort of similar territory, isn't it? Like it's what is writing? It's turning up. If you were the one that totally. could be bothered Absolutely. to write down the thoughts, you were a writer. Exactly. And also everything that I've ever written is just because I had the wherewithal to get my pen and to write it down there. And then so I remembered exactly what was said and it, st- it stood me in good stead. And I think that, um, yeah, actually just doing it is it doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't the ideas that you have. It's just about actually executing them and doing it. And so many people think oh, I've got this idea for a short film, but it has to be like filmed properly and has to, you know, have a director and has, it doesn't. I think everyone overthinks everything. It just has to be about just writing it down and making it. <laughs> when it came to the recording of uh, Sunrise, which happened during Corona and to an audience of one, BB, which was great because I saw it live and I then watched I Loved Her on the Soho On Demand service and uh, and then I thought, oh, I'll just brush up. I'll just revise this morning on a bit of sunrise. And then I started it and I went, oh, wow, this was recorded recently. And there's no, like, tell me about that. Tell me how different. I was so glad I, I went back to it because I saw it in like a huge room in Edinburgh, you know, in the assembly, a, a big full room. Talk to me about the experience of doing it just to BB. Well, I was in my, I, I felt very safe and, and, and I felt quite ashamed to say that really because, I loved doing It's Just BB. And when they said, I'm really sorry, but I won't be able to have an audience because of the virus and everything, I was thrilled. And that that did make me feel very guilty because obviously Alfie's a stand-up and he's had his job basically taken away from him. And I he relishes an audience and lives for that, you know, the buzz of having an audience there. And so I did feel slightly like, oh, right, his argument about it not being stand-up is kind of, that's, he's, you know, this has proven his point, really. Um so I felt very safe. And also as an, you know, I do act and I have done quite a lot of it. And it was very much like filming something, but, you know, just doing a number of takes. And and I'm I'm quite, I, I enjoy that part of it. I enjoy drilling something and doing it. 
And that was always something I found really disheartening about doing it live so many times because I'd be like, but I can do that better. That is I can do that so much better. Fascinating. It never even occurred to me. Of course, you can stop. It's only BB. Mm. You could stop and yeah. retake a bit. Did you did you go yeah. all through the way did you go all through it in one go or was there well, well no, it was great because the because um the baby was so little, um, we were allowed to they I just said oh, I can only do it if we're gonna do it in like really like particular hours in the day. So we just filmed it over about three days, um, rehearsed it too. So I could just do a few hours at the time and and um so it was it wasn't it wasn't rushed it wasn't like a show you record in the evening and you do two tries and that's it it was like i could i had probably about three takes for every bit um so it was perfect i'm not saying that i like the outcome i i'm really glad that it was filmed professionally and adam brace is amazing and andrew nolan who um is the dop is amazing too but i i do think i could have done it a lot better still and but the great thing is with age and kind of my pride is not as I'm not as proud as I think I once was um it doesn't matter it really doesn't matter like it's good enough and it, it gives that this the show is that's a fine example of what it is it's not the best version of it but yeah. it's good enough <laughs> that is such a great thing to hear an artist say I was talking to um uh, my friend Amanda this morning about um sort of about those things about the so there's a, a concept in the therapy that I've explored years ago about daring to be average dare you know dare to be average and it sounds just like it's it you want to run a mile from it because it's like oh god I don't want to be average and just in talking to her about it I was understanding oh it's oh it's dare to be average for oneself not dare to be an average person but but recognize and embrace the fact that 50% of your work won't be as good as the other 50% of your work because you mm. cannot maintain the top 10 percentile of your creative or performative ability you can't do that the whole time because that's that would be impossible it would no longer be the top 10 percent do you mean so actually forgiveness i suppose what i'm talking about is forgiveness as an artist or compassion self-compassion as an artist yeah totally i'm much i'm much less of a perfectionist now i don't think i've actually ever been a perfectionist um and given that i i think that alfie is and i think bb is to a certain extent um, yeah, I've always been like, let's just do it and put it out. That doesn't matter. Um, there's, there's definitely, you know, I, I, I don't, I'm not striving to be average, but I also, I don't want to be precious about things. And it, it, that's just the way it was. I didn't get another take. Okay. Well, that's good enough then. That's fine. I love it. I love it. I'm really <laughs> excited about the idea of being a drill sergeant, but not a perfectionist. That seems to me to be key to a happy creative life. Yeah, I, I, I do find whenever I'm very prepared for something, then I'm not as bothered when it's not perfect. Um, and I, I, we had one experience, me and Alfie, of actually in the breakup period, just before we broke up, I think it probably was the trigger. Um, he was doing a show and... Basically, I I said to him, I, I went to see the first show in Edinburgh and I was like, this, you have to do this with it. You have to drill this. You have to put this bit here in it. And so I made him get up in the mornings and I made him drill it. Um, and he hated me for it. Like he really, really did not enjoy that process. But when a month later, it was absolutely amazing. 
we did break up because of that period of time, but because I was awful. But at the same time, it did make me, I am very much like that. I just think if you, if you're prepared and you, you know what you're trying to say, then you can be a bit more free and enjoy it more. Um, what's your biggest failure artistically? My biggest failure artistically is absolutely um, wasting eight years in development for TV. Um, so I spent 2000, I got, I got, I was, I've been in development about five or six times with different production companies. I was in development with Channel 4 for eight years with one idea and it got rejected eight years later. Um, I wasted so much time working on that, thinking it would happen with a number of executives, different commissioners. Um, and the production company was great, but, but I should have had the guts to say no early on rather than thinking, oh, I need to get this made. I need, It's Channel 4, you know. I should have had the guts to be like, this isn't going to happen. I'm not going to waste my time because I could have put my efforts into other things. I should have kept making YouTube videos. I wish I'd done that. I wish I'd kept that up. Um, I got sucked in to the power and thinking, oh, but this is legit. This is a channel. And it really is not all it's cracked up to be. And those eight years are invisible. No one can see all the work I did. The script's there. Yeah, the script gets shopped around, but it's not going to get made. Um, and I, I'm never doing that again. Um, and, you know, you can waste so many hours having these meetings for development things and it all comes to nothing. I mean, I'm sorry to be a pessimist about it. Some, some obviously there are shows getting made, but I sure. have spent, I've spent a, almost a decade in development, and there's just no point for me anymore. I'm not ever going to get hurt like that again. Thank you. That's a really good answer. I'm an efficiency nerd as well, and it just doesn't seem like a sensible trade-off. It doesn't seem like a gamble I'm willing to take to put years no. into making a thing that then is decided by someone else's whim. And now everything I do is just me. Exactly. And also, who is the judge of this thing? It's usually a development. It, you know, it's very rarely somebody who's more qualified than you who's saying yes or no. Or I know we just talked about, you know, what qualification means, but it they, they're having a number of things in development with many other people. But you just get tricked into thinking that this is this this is going to be worth it. They actually really like this one, or this is, and um and I'm not talking about like early stages development. This is like this is years of working on one script, working on a treatment, working on an episode outline, just like stuff that should take no time at all. Took years, and I just regret it. I I, I shudder to think about how much time I wasted. But you know, I. It does make me more brutal with things when BB's saying, or oh, should I submit this idea for this? Or should I do? I'm like, nope, nope, don't do it. Just do it, make it yourself. Don't do it. <laughs> That's good. That's a good um, preparation for the age of YouTube and zero gatekeepers in which we now live. I suppose that's good. That's a good mentality. You're kind of, a, for her at least, you're, she's maybe ahead of the curve on, like, you know, one of the most important things management can do for anyone, if we just briefly regard you as BB's management, is to say no. Yeah. I don't think she'll listen to me, though, which is interesting. I think that everyone has to make their own mistakes and yeah. everyone gets lured in by professionals telling them that they're brilliant. And this time it will be different. This time it will be quick. This this will get through the door quick. Mm. That is no, that's such a shame, though, if you've arrived at a position of I'm never doing that again. I really have. Yeah. yeah. 
I mean, obviously, if somebody gave me an offer, I would not say no. But sure. um, it, I wouldn't I don't have any expectation anymore for that kind of thing. And as a result, I don't really um, respect much that gets made anymore. I, I very rarely enjoy something and think that was amazing. That was brilliant. Quite often I'm like that 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 got through the door. Well done them. But, it, you know, how many years did that take? Hmm. Off the back of that, how do you, you may have answered this already, but how do you cope with failure? I expect failure. So I don't expect anything to do well or anyone to like anything. I'm very, very, very negative. I, I, to a massive fault, I expect it to go badly. How do you, if you were advising someone else on how to cope with failure? with perhaps a bit a little more optimism <laughs> rather than the kind of negativity like how do you wish you did cope with failure what do you think would be good for you to do to cope with failure rather than to have a kind of negative anticipatory yeah. get the attack in myself get the attack on myself in first kind of attitude um well well i basically i don't know i think it's quite good to not really have any expectations because then when things do go well and if you do do you put the work in then it's a bonus, um, but and I, I I think I've been hurt so much by career things not working out that like the development stuff um, that I think it, any hope has been stamped out of me. Um, but I I guess it goes back to being prepared. If you're if you work hard and you're prepared, then the failure won't hurt as much because then you know you've done your best. And I think that's exactly what I'm kind of preparing myself for with the book. Like if it doesn't do well. I've tried my best, like I've done everything possible. So that's okay. And do you do you have an internal metric for what will be sufficient in terms of it doing well in inverted commas? Like how well does it need to do for you to feel like it's done well? <laughs> I think that the best way to cope with failure is just to, is to just try it again in a different way. I, I just think that I... I've never been put off by failure. I never stopped trying after it. Yeah. Um, but that might be because of my tennis um, upbringing, you know, like you lose matches all the time. That's a really good point. I don't hear enough on this podcast about analogies of sport or games, because if you're a footballer or a tennis player or whatever, you expect to frequently lose and yeah, you have exactly. to get you have to get used to it. Whereas as a comic, as a performer... If you tr- if you attempt to be funny and it doesn't work, it's very hard to think to yourself, "Oh, that's a no score draw," or yeah. uh, you know, or the equivalent. Yeah, totally. Yeah, it hasn't ever crushed me. Whereas my sister and I think my other siblings, it did. It does crush them a lot more. Um, whereas I'm, yeah, I'm just very pragmatic about it, and I have very low, low expectations anyway. So that's quite lucky. But yes, it isn't. It, it, I'm not the, the happiest person to be around, probably. <laughs> Well, that was, you've preempted my very last question, which is, are you happy? I am happy. And that's something like I don't take for granted. And also, I never thought I would say after the last two years. Um, But that's the thing that people don't really understand about grief and tragedy. I think you, you can still be happy. You just also have this darkness. Um, Rob Delaney said it so brilliantly. Um, after his three-year-old died um he said it's like i can still see the rainbow but now i have an extra black layer in it 
And I completely relate to that. Like I'm, I'm able to still be happy. I would call myself happy right now. I'm very content. Um, and, but I have this huge sadness in me daily as well. So yeah, I'm, it's a conflict, but it's definitely manageable and I, happiness wins usually. Thanks, Jesse. Oh, thank you. So that was Jesse Cave, a really, really enjoyable interview and just someone who I, I'm really inspired by her creative approach to everything and I would love to be a bit less of a perfectionist and a bit more of a drill sergeant I feel like I get a lot done but it's never enough I spoke to one of you I spoke to a a very kind member of the ComCom pod fraternity called Jeremy who um uh, is a project manager and Jeremy and I are sort of trying to I mean he's giving me really useful advice about projects and time management and I'm sort of pathetically trying to offer him things in return um but I just the knowledge, like the very first thing he said to me was, you realise this list of everything that you have to do is too much for one person to do. And to just hear someone say that was extraordinarily powerful. Having said that, Jessie just seems to find the time. Maybe she is the kind of uh, uh, sunrise power woman that she talks about in the show Sunrise uh, after all. And you really have got to watch those shows. They're on the Soho On Demand service and you rent them for 48 hours for four or five pounds. Both of those shows are absolutely fantastic, so please get stuck into those. You can follow her on all the socials at Jessie Cave or go to jessiedoodles.com to find her website. Um, you can find out all about her novel Sunset there as well. And the Patreon for her podcast, We Can't Talk About This Right Now, with her little sister Bibi, is at uh, patreon.com slash cavesisters, and you can find it on YouTube and what have you. That's the sort of that's the kind of shout-out you have to do for all the things when someone is as busy as Jessie. So thank you to her for being on the show. Thanks for listening. The logging was Jake Crossland the editor is Nathan Wood Uh, the music is by Rob Smout and your podcast consultant is Pete Dobbing I'm Stuart Goldsmith and you can contact me info at comedianscomedian.com you can check out the comedianscomedian.com website and go to the Insiders Club if you wish to join that or support the show Uh, you get all of your ad free uh, all of your episodes ad free plus you uh, get all of the extra content from every show that has it which is just a huge amount of stuff now so jump on that if you fancy um, and also the recent Insiders Q&As with people like Nish Kumar, James Acaster, Fern Brady, uh, as well as Alfie Brown, uh, the aforementioned Alfie Brown, and uh, the incredible Self-Help for Comedians special with psychologist Amanda Donnett. All of that at the Insiders Club. Um, no postamble today, loads on. I've been getting back to work and it's been really exciting, but uh, the thing that is occupying all my time at the moment is my 30 Days of Resilience video challenge on LinkedIn. So if you can find me on LinkedIn, Stuart Goldsmith Comedy Insights, have a little look at that. I've got about... I can't possibly have 10 days left of it. It's been going on for so long. But um, I think there are something like nine or 10 days left. Uh, There's some video clips there with people like Russell Howard, Catherine Bohart, uh, Rosie Jones, me just kind of filtering out some little tips on resilience from various interviews that I've done. So have a look at those. Uh, and follow me on the socials at ComComPod. That's everything. We've got some belters in the can coming up. Josh Johnson, very, very exciting. He's coming out next week. Then we have uh, Paul Zerdin. Um, and also, I'm uh, interviewing someone else very entertaining later this week. More news once it's safely in the can. Bye for now. <laughs>
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.